Hey listeners, before we start today's show, I just want to give everyone a content warning very quickly. Uh, there is talk about suicide and suicide ideation in this episode on The Final Destination, and if that is triggering for you, um, I just wanted to provide you a heads up. I will do my best to put in the show notes where that's going to occur. We're actually going to record this episode here in a few minutes. If you are experiencing suicidal thoughts or need some help right now, I would like to remind everyone that the National Suicide Prevention Line can be reached 24 hours a day at 1-800-273-8255. Don't be afraid to ask for help. Survivors in the accident. What if we weren't meant to survive? What's gonna happen to us? I think we can stop it. Hey everybody, welcome back to The Pod and the Pendulum, the podcast covering every single horror movie franchise, one movie in one episode at a time. I'm your host, Mike Snoonian, joined once again by my co-host, Lindsay Travis. Lindsay, how are we doing today? I'm doing good. I'm doing well. It's the holidays. It is. We are a little bit ahead of ourselves, so 
I think this will be the first episode of 2021 for us. Oh, it's the new year, I mean. Happy yeah. New Year, everyone. Yeah, well, I think that still counts among the holidays, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think when this episode posts, it will be my first day returning back to work after like an 11-day break. So I will probably be very surly when I like check out this episode the morning that it comes out. Like you're gonna probably going to have to like pull me off of the like railings of our house, like drag me to my car and force me to go to work. So I'm just not out. looking forward to it right now. No it one checks. wants to do that. No one does. But we are joined by a fantastic guest today. Um, I don't know why it's taken a hundred episodes to ask you to come on the show. And that is my fault. So uh, it's okay. Have... I'm here to uh, fix the errors of the past. Really here to like straighten this out yes. at this point and make sure that we run an organized effort here because it's just been a slapdash chaotic effort really held together by spirit gum and tape so far. So I don't know how we made it to episode four, never mind episode 100, but let's welcome from the Horror Queers podcast, Joe Lipset. Joe, how are we? Hello, thank you for having me. Oh, thank you for joining us, man. I'm really, because I've been listening to your show for like about a year now and really enjoying what you and Trace are putting down of the perspective there. So I don't know why I've like waited so long to say like, dude, come on our show. And I don't know why I've done that with this movie, but you know, it is, <laughs> it's like, I don't know. Uh, yeah, I mean, we've been joking that I drew the short straw in ending up with this film, but I'm actually okay with it. Like I'm yeah. totally fine with it. I think I'm psyched nice... that you're here for this one. Yeah. I feel like you're gonna bring think, the noise. I think what's great is even though this is my least favorite of the, movies we're going to cover in the Final Destination series, because we are here to talk 2009's The Final Destination, which much like the final chapter in Friday the 13th, it's not. Um, none of these movies are awful. Like there's, to me, there's no Jason Takes Manhattan with this one. You know, there's no, um, there's no like Elm Street remake with this one. Like all of them like are at least watchable to a certain degree. And I would say like this falls under that category so we might not gush over it like we did um parts like one two and three so far and probably how i will over part five but like i think it's interesting to discuss this one as a little bit of an anomaly and what they course correct in the next one um so before we start though uh, what i actually want to ask you about is you have a relatively new venture that i've been really enjoying so far where you've actually put together your own podcast network with a focus on um, the LGBT community that may want to get into podcasting as well as like the disability community, uh, really like marginalized voices that may not always feel like they have a voice at the table or if they want to say something, don't know where to start. Cause so can you kind of talk about really like the mentoring efforts that you're doing with the anatomy of a scream network? Yeah, absolutely. So this is another creative venture that I do with my horror bestie here in Toronto, Valeska Griffiths. And we decided kind of like what you just said, Michael, we really wanted to acknowledge that there's a lot of people who may want to get into podcasting, but it's confusing for them, or they don't have a concept that has like 100 episodes in it. 
but we still want to hear their voices, particularly from people who we might not normally hear in the podcast community. So the idea is that people pitch us their limited series podcasts on whatever subject they want, and we're trying to get marginalized voices or people uh, that typically don't have the opportunity to come together and have uh, coordinated publicity reach or somebody to help guide them in. Like podcasting often is like, just spend for yourself, you'll figure it out. And it's like, sometimes that works, but sometimes it's really difficult. So yeah, the idea is that people will pitch us their limited shows and then they're all on one feed. So each show can benefit from the publicity that another one has. And if you subscribe to one, then you might sample another one and realize, oh, I really like this person's voice as well. So we just started that back in the fall of 2020 and it's working out really, really well so far. We do have mentorship opportunities like Lindsay is actually also one of the mentors. And yeah. The idea is we try to help guide people to produce the best show possible based around the show that they want to make. And then we put them on the podcast network so that they don't have to do all of the sort of strong arm publicity themselves. Yeah, there's like a number of really good, like I listened to one, I think it was Christmas Eve on like films that never made it off the ground. And they had an interview with like Ryan Spindell of the Mortuary Collection. Mm-hmm. And he talked about like the dozen year effort it took to get that movie made. And then as, as well as some projects that never do get made. And I know um, one of our guests in the past, Nicole does, like, does bodies and horror. Um, mm-hmm. When it comes to the mentoring, like what does that process kind of like look like? Is it just as simple as like, here's the equipment you need versus like, here's how you want to edit it. Or does it go into like as deep as like how you market yourself as well? Yeah, the marketing is kind of the piece that we're still figuring out a little bit. We wanted to try to remove some of the barriers by having it all on one feed so that people didn't have to create their own Twitter or Instagram handles if they didn't want to do that. But really, the main focus we're trying to do is helping people to ensure that their premise is sound and then getting them to unpack, like, how do you structure an episode? Um, So sometimes we'll help people with their show notes. We'll encourage them to think about music cues as transitions. A lot of people struggle with the technical elements, so we try to give them some guidance around, here's a video on how to use the editing software. Uh, You know, what's the benefit of paying for something as opposed to doing it for free? So we been trying to leverage our shared experiences either as podcasters or podcast guests and uh, then also just as people who regularly write and produce content like everybody who's part of the mentorship team is involved in the horror writing community so we've got a good idea about like this is how you might structure something or this is why you might want to take a different angle or this seems great but you maybe need to polish it or give it a couple of extra days to think about it. Mm-hmm. So here's the question, because we're, we've been doing this show for almost two years now, and it almost becomes like a habit of a way of like, here's how I do my notes, and here's how we reach out to guests, and here's mm-hmm. how we record. So you fall into some habits. Um, as someone who's podcasted a long time for your own show, but also now has like a broader look at like what the medium is and how to kind of like find a voice in it, what would you say would be one or two things that people kind of overlook or don't think about when they're thinking about how they want to do their show. 
Well, that's a really good question. I think, uh, Lindsay, you might agree with me that one of the things that we found is helping people to acknowledge what is unique about their show and more yeah. specifically their voice. So we've got a lot of people who are like, I'm really interested in this subject. And we're like, cool. Have you thought about what you're going to bring to the table that's different from somebody else? So, you know, a lot of shows are relatively similar. There's either a comedic bent and you're unpacking a film or you're talking about, you know, like for a while there was kill by kill kind of models where it's like we're going to unpack each death. Um, so thinking about if you're going to do something that other people are already doing, what's unique about you and typically it ends up being the personalities of the host mm -hmm. right like people fall in love with your voice your personality uh the way that you approach talking about films yeah. um and i would say the other big thing is helping people to understand the differences between having one host two hosts or like multiple hosts or even guest hosts and how does that change the dynamic so the podcast that you referenced earlier mike development hell which is looking at films that are you know, they languished basically in development hell forever. Um, the host of that one, Josh Corngut, uh, he initially proposed it as a one-person show. And then he was like, oh, but I actually also really want to interview people about their experiences trying to get these projects off the ground. And that was like the moment that it really broke open because all of a sudden he had other people he could bounce conversations around with. So the transition from a one-person show to like a show that sometimes has guests is it's really opened him up creatively to then have different kinds of conversations. Yeah. I'd imagine a one person show without guests is probably the most difficult medium to do. I got to imagine that's a really hard thing to do. I don't think I could sustain that for a long time because I just would get tired of my own voice, let alone thinking an audience wants to hear it. Yeah. It's going like, work. Like, yeah, we're not all Karina Longworth, though, right? Like, yeah. we're not that good at research and we're not right. that good at transitions and so on. But that's, yeah, you yeah. can do it. You just need mm -hmm. to be way more prepared, I think. Like, yeah. that's where you have a script and you're yeah. ready for everything. Yeah. Exactly what I was going to say. It's the research element. Like, I'm always worried about research-based podcasts when, if it's one person, it can be so great if they've got, like, I've collected information about... You know, I think it's really trendy in true crime. A lot of the more mm -hmm. straight ones are the ones that have done like a ton of research and have put together a linear story for you, or maybe they've like got a couple twists, but yeah, you never want to be the person reading the Wikipedia article into a microphone. Who are you and why are you different? What are exactly. you going to do different? And that's really yeah. what's working. I think that's really well put. And I think that's, yeah, that's exactly it. Like, don't give us something that you can find or cannot find anywhere else. Not something that can easily find in the first page of like a Google result. Mm -hmm. I kind of yeah. hope is what we do here with our show. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, oh no. We just threw down the gauntlet. So we are here to talk about uh, 2009's The Final Destination, the fourth film in the series, which was supposed to be the last movie in the series, directed uh, once again by David R. Ellis and interesting how like the first four movies like ping pong back and forth with directors right now mm -hmm. and how there's like these little attempts to kind of undermine the movie that came before it in some ways like not in an egregious way but kind of walking back what the other movie had done so I'll, I'll pose it to you first joe what is it about this series that you really enjoy that when we were um open to like having guests on to discuss the franchise you're like get me in for one of these movies please like what is it about this series 
Oh, I'm very much in the same camp as you, Mike, where for me, there isn't a bad Final Destination film. I think that this is a legitimately great, particularly post-2000s horror franchise. So the first one really started to try and do something a little bit different. I I take issue with the suggestion that this is a slasher series, because mm-hmm. I actually don't agree with that. I really think it's hewing closer to like a supernatural oh, Okay, spicy. Okay. Yeah. But I, I just like the fact that this is a series that at its core is inherently nihilistic and kind of grim. Like there isn't a movie where anyone survives. Every single character in this franchise will die. Mm-hmm. And if you can accept that going into the films, then it becomes more understandable why the films are so fixated on the deaths and the death sequences. And from watching horror films and studying them, I'd like to make the connection between uh, like dance films or like musicals and horror films and how they basically stop the film to have set pieces. And if you look at the Final Destination films as films that stop to have these death set pieces, to me, they're kind of like top tier echelon then because they're films that really put all of their focus and time and attention on those set pieces. So what we sacrifice for character development and particularly in this fourth film, that's never been more true. Uh, what you get then in spades is this focus on just really satisfying over the top gratuitous deaths. I really like that perspective and take. That's such a good point that, I mean, as you watch them, you talk about the best deaths and we talked about, with so many slashers, you talk about the best deaths. I know you're not calling this a slasher, but that is a really trendy thing for sure. But specifically in these ones, yeah, they're really nihilistic. You know, everyone's going to die and it pauses. I really like that. There's almost a a take. I'm just, as you're saying that here, I'm thinking like, what would be interesting to see with this series going forward because there is a new one in the works right now and i'm yes. sure if it's successful mm-hmm. there'll be more of them because mm-hmm. because you're not recycling the same cast over and over again and also because you're not necessarily beholden you know there's like round rules that are in place but they're able to shift a little bit each movie not so much that it becomes unrecognizable but so that it just kind of builds on it a little bit in a really smart way that because characters are trying to cheat death throughout it, that would the ultimate revenge be a character that can't die, period. And you then have someone who is like hundreds of years old and wants nothing more but to die, just as a little bit different take on something down the road. Um, I appreciate what you're saying there too about the nihilism of this series, because I do think that compared to a lot of the movies of this era, I think there's an element of fun that, just doesn't exist and say like the platinum dune remakes which i know those have their fans and they're not necessarily bad movies per se but they are like really over the top in terms of like how dark they get mm-hmm. there's an element of fun to all five of these movies even though like you said there's really no final girl or final group like it eventually everybody gets gotten at the end yep. of it, whether it's you see it in the film and it's explicit, or you know whether you read a newspaper clipping later on that poor <laughs> Alex is head. dead by brick, uh, <laughs> which would never. I also like this. Just hit me as I was like hitting uh, open for Zoom today. I can now no longer say Devon Sawa's name without singing Farishaka in my head. 
I just sing his name. <laughs> okay, yeah. Like that. Um, How Canadian. Yeah, and now that is stuck in your head forever, basically. Yeah. So, um, all right. So, you know, we'd like to talk a little bit about the background of this movie. And to be honest, there's really not a lot when it comes to the final destination. It was literally, hey, the third one made a lot of money. Let's go out and uh, make another one. James really? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> in three. Yes. This is like the the first 3D movie I saw in theaters. It was like a main event. Yes. And I remember like we went, it was um I went to school in a town that was, I think they called it a test market town, where like the first chain restaurant, the first chain, whatever, they would always open one there to see. I mean it's a city, but um they would like test everything there. So it was the first VIP theater in Canada. And it was the test run. And it was very different than the VIP theaters as they look today. Um, but it had like bigger seats and assigned seating and you could drink and like all these. And there were better food and trays and things like that. And it was very fancy. And we went. That's the early days of it. those theaters too. Like that is that in its infancy when that would have been a big deal. Yeah, it was like right at the beginning. It was the first one in the country. So how about you, Joe? What was your first experience seeing the Final Destination? So this is a series that I went to see in theaters with every successive iteration. Mm. So I had the pleasure of seeing the first three, all of them in theaters. And then this one, yeah, I mean, the 3D is definitely a selling feature. Like this is the time period when they were trying to make 3D films a big deal again. So it's fun when you see, okay, yeah, I'm going to pay a little bit more. I'm going to get the silly glasses and we're going to go and watch things get thrown at our faces. But um, and we'll, we'll get to it, but I feel like particularly this film embraces not just the camp quality, but also the meta-ness of its 3D by literally setting its finale at a movie theater where an explosion rockets out at the crowd. Mm -hmm. You're like, yeah, yeah like you, you understood how ridiculous this is. Yeah. And I kind of love that. Yeah, Can I you... loved it in theater. It was like, I knew it was playing a joke on me. It was throwing glass in my face. It was like my first 3D experiences before that were like at Disney World seeing the Muppets 3D thing where right. you wear those glasses. And so this was very much like 3D is a thing now and now we're going to throw it at you. And it was like when people had the theories of like, oh, it's a gimmick. And then it was like, yeah, that's what they thought about color movies. And then, you know, now it's just going to be how movies are made. And before we had the like Avatar version of 3D, it was getting things chucked at your face in Final Destination 4 yep. or the yeah. Final Destination. Yep. And you have like these bizarre, and it's funny watching this movie at home and not kind of keeping in mind that, oh yeah, this was filmed with 3D in mind. You have mm. these weird interludes where like the character of Nick like gets these premonitions and these like little objects come like sprinting out in the foreground yeah. of the screen at that point. And you're like, why is it doing this? And why does it look like a PlayStation three graphic right now? Yeah. <laughs> um, the other thing about this yeah. movie, it's probably the first one that is like very reliant on CGI overall. Like I know the yeah. second one, they add CGI flames and whatnot to it, but most of the deaths were done practically. This one is really really heavy on gra on, on CGI graphics and it doesn't quite pull off some of them. No, sadly, I think that, like, I'm sure we're going to talk about the number of reasons why people don't like this film or they mm -hmm. think it's the least successful of the five. And that is, I think, one of the biggest notches in 
uh, that argument is that yeah. the CGI deaths just don't look good. Like CGI right. is hard to pull off at the best of times, and this film in particular just doesn't mm-hmm. look good. Yeah. I would say the moments they do have practical effects, because you do have K and B do uh, some of the practical work for this movie, like at the scenes that do work, like you have like the redneck getting dragged down the street, like that actually works yes. pretty well. You have the um, escalator scene um, and like the gore, like just that bit of gristle that comes uh, winding through the gears. Like that's a pretty effective moment overall. Um, mm-hmm. I think like the best moment is an animated moment. Like the end credits are probably, cause this is the first one I did see in theaters. Um, so this was like the first one where I actually saw this in theaters. Like, I think I talked a little bit about this in some of the other episodes, how New Line really packed in their DVDs with a ton of features. Like they would give like Vinegar Syndrome and Scream Factory a run for their money on their special editions with just their run of the mill titles like Jason X, which lost money in theaters, but they're like, we've got all this content, let's throw it on there. Um, what stood out for me was, yep, seeing this in 3D and, you know, enjoying it. Um, and also, like, uh, I had said the end credits, the opening credits where you have, like, all the animated deaths, uh, which look really cool. And then that last sequence where you see the three characters' bodies, like, smash in an animated way. And I, I actually want to use that as a jumping off point here to ask us, to me, there's like a meanness to this. It very much parallels what happens in part three where like um, Mary Elizabeth Winstead's character is just like killed off in this like really horrifying <laughs> uh, nightmarish sequence. But I think in that one, you're meant to walk out of the theater feeling like awful about yeah. it. Like, oh crap, here, using it in an animated way to show like, look what happens to these three people. Look how much this is going to really hurt. And like their teeth are spilling everywhere. It, it to me like underlines a point that like, this is a film that absolutely hates its characters. (laughs) Um, And it's written with that in mind. Like there are like the Friday the 13th remake, I think is one that's famous for this where like, there are no likable character. Well, there are very few likable characters in that movie and you leave it wondering why would anyone go hang out with Chad? I don't care how great his lakefront cabin is like this dude's an asshole. Nobody would hang out with him. This one, like from the get go, they're like, Hey, by the way, like almost everyone in this movie is a complete showed. And the two characters you're supposed to like have as much personality as like warm tapioca pudding. So you're not really going to be that into them anyway. So am I wrong? Like, am I missing something here with these characters? Like, cause Lindsay, your face right now looks horrified. You're like, how dare you slag tapioca (laughs) like that? I feel like the other ones, I think one and three do a good job. One, three and five do a good job making you at least care a bit about the characters. I think too, like we talked about it, they really get lost in plot so much so that you don't care about the characters, mm-hmm. I think. As there this, and as much as I don't care a ton about them, I still don't feel like it was setting me up like in the Friday the 13th sequel, like one of the early sequels before they um, get a little more creative. I don't feel like they were like, here's a bunch of people that are gonna die, have some fun. Like, I don't feel mm-hmm. like they chucked people at us to die, but it doesn't exactly like make them super redeeming. Like it does spend time making us hate a couple of them. But I don't know. What's his name? Bobby. 
Bobby Campo. Yeah, Bobby Campo. He's just like likable enough naturally, mm-hmm. but he's kind of drywall. Like he's very boring yeah. and dry, but he's likable enough naturally that you are rooting for him a bit. Mm-hmm. But it's not like in part uh, three where it's like you even like the tanning bed gals, you know? Mm-hmm. Love is, the yeah. tanning web gals. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm more inclined to agree with Lindsay. I don't think we're meant to hate anybody except uh, Hunt, the Nick yeah. Zeno character, because he's obviously just a repulsive jerk. Yeah. But I also don't agree, or sorry, I don't disagree with you, Mike, that these people are bland and they are like tapioca levels of interesting Mm -hmm. where you just think honestly it feels like a bunch of these people got shifted from like the hallmark movie casting to like oh well we're also doing this horror movie down the hall if you want to just audition for that because they're all just bland pretty people like Mm -hmm. the exception for me is my kelty williamson who is a legitimately great actor mm-hmm. not in this movie unfortunately but i think it's because they just don't give him anything to do right but everybody else is like just pretty white people and honestly white people are boring i think we can be very boring we definitely can be very boring um and i'm not just talking about like the core group of four characters but like when you look at the overall pool of victims like i thought in part two um, and I think you're right, Lindsay, that's one that does get bogged down a bit more in the plot mechanics of the movie. And like, we have to expand the lore a little bit and here's how it's going to happen. But then you still had characters like the one who's like, hey, take my keys and please go see my mom and, or please go to my apartment before my mom does so that all the bad shit is out of there. Like, there's no moment like that in this movie that humanizes like a really fun character. There's nothing like there's nothing like Timmy and his mom that have this weird kind of like quasi incestuous relationship that's way too, way too close when he's 15 years old. And then you don't have anything where he's like pigeons and just goes running to his death as he <laughs> sees pigeons. Love Here you have pigeons. like Justin Welburn's character doesn't even get a name, it's just racist. That's the yeah. name of the character. Now, unless his parents were like omniscient. Or like, you know, clairvoyant. And they're like, this kid's going to grow up to be a Nazi. So that's what they named him. Because they were really on the nose. Um, And it's so funny though, too. Because like Eric Bress, the screenwriter of this movie, is also the same screenwriter as number two. Mm -hmm. And he does give them, he gives all of these people proper names. And they make the effort of naming them all after like not quite as famous horror directors. Mm -hmm. But then they don't even bother to reference that in the actual dialogue so like we know milf we know racist it's just like what are you doing come on it's it's really bad um mechanic you know it's like it's these v-bit players and i think to your point like the screenwriters and and david ellis know at this point the stars of this movie are the deaths like the rube goldberg-esque mechanics that are going on it's like not like a typical series where there's a michael or a jason or a leatherface like nope you're coming for the spectacle of seeing people killed off in very convoluted and fun and grisly ways so why bother you're really only going to have like two scenes like with these characters like they're going to be introduced in the beginning and then we're going to go visit them and tell them you're going to die and then they're going to die um and that so, isn't dissimilar from number three. The difference is, is that we actually get to know the people in three. Mm-hmm. So like a lot of the supporting actors in three, it, it, 
like they kind of exist mm -hmm. to have their gruesome death sequences, but we're spending so much time with the Mary Elizabeth Winstead and, you know, generic dude whose name I can't remember. But um, in this case, it's like, because I think it's because there are a couple, they already know everything about each other. So mm -hmm. they don't do any leverage for us, the audience. So we're like, oh, okay, you're just a boring couple, but also you're not telling us anything. Right. So we just go from scene to scene as opposed to like unpacking what they're feeling or thinking. Hey listeners, Mike here. I just want to cut into the show with what I promise will be a brief pitch for our Patreon account. And I got musical cues and everything to not run past. If you love what we do and what we bring each week in terms of analysis, humor, criticism, insight, charm, good looks, really the complete package, we hope you consider supporting us by becoming a Patreon of our pod. Your contributions allow us to build what we've done for nearly 100 episodes now by paying for our server's hosts, by purchasing better recording and editing equipment, and by giving us the funds we need to buy the movies, the books, the documentaries, and other research materials we use to bring each episode to life. Our weekly show is always going to be free, and we know that times are tight for everyone right now. We also know there's a number of phenomenal podcasts deserving of your support. That's why, as well as our gratitude, we offer bonus content to all levels of patrons, starting at just two bucks. Every month, we deliver a complete bonus episode on a movie we might not otherwise cover, and all of our patrons get access to our exclusive Slack channel where we talk horror, music, any other types of movies. Really, it's a cool little community with our patrons right now that are all just awesome people. With 2021 right around the corner, I got some more ideas up my sleeve on how to give everybody some more content and some more swag. So please help keep the show strong by heading to patreon.com slash pod and the pendulum and become a supporter today. And now back to the show. In the third movie, it's a solid 15 to 20 minutes before you get to the actual like roller coaster of doom. And you do get those little moments. It's similar to the first film where you get to follow Alex around. You get to see his relationship with his best mm -hmm. friend, Todd. You get like a real feel for the, the um, teacher's dynamic with Miss Lawton and how she is with her students. So everybody has like a little bit of development so you can see them. Um, even in the, the second movie, like you get a feel for like Kimberly and her friends a little bit before they're wiped off the mat. This one, it opens like straight, like the first shots you see are the cars going around the track at 600 miles an hour. It's like, look, we don't, we know why you're here. You know why you're here. Let's not pretend, you know, it's like when you, I don't know use Tinder for like, I assume casual sex. If you go for a drink <laughs> first, get to know one another. It's like, let's just skip over that part and get right to it. Cut right point. to the chase. So yeah, this, this movie is the grinder of Final Destination <laughs> Excellent, <movies>. excellent. <laughs> There's no, no so errors what, put on in this movie. No, so, no pretense. <laughs> so Lindsay and, and Joe, what do we think of this opening sequence? Like, what do we think? Where does this one the NASCAR uh, explosions like sit in terms of like the overall 
um, grand scheme of this this franchise and their big spectacles. I think it's definitely the silliest. I think uh, like most of the other things they do are dangerous but not cartoon dangerous like an airplane there's a lot of danger there but not cartoony danger you know same with the roller coaster I guess I mean like it's dangerous but you don't hear a lot of anyway as we're like in a NASCAR race the second you see a car driving you're like oh someone's someone's gonna explode and someone's gonna die like it's Mm -hmm. it starts there so it is really silly for sure and you really see it all come together like you see um it's really obvious in this one compared to the others, what moments are going to be the things that are going to tune the main character into the fact that it's, he's living it twice. So like every little, the mom and the kid and every little thing that happens, you're like, Oh, okay. This is going to be the thing that, that cues him in. So it seems really obvious where you are right at the beginning. Um, And then it's really silly, but you know, I went to see a 3D Final Destination movie. I expected a tire to get chucked at me immediately. And that's exactly what happened. Like it delivers. So I don't know if it's like good or bad, better or worse than others per se, but I think it's the silliest, the most obvious, but it kind of works because it's exactly what you need mm-hmm. it to be. I don't know. Yeah, I think my problem is that this is the least relatable of the five. Like we we basically got two car accidents and then a plane. And those are things that quote unquote, regular people do all the time. Mm -hmm. So for me, it's like a race to the bottom in terms of the roller coaster versus this one. But the roller coaster is genuinely terrifying. Like there are moments in that film where if you've ridden a roller coaster, you have felt what those characters experience. You know, I, I can't say that I've been to a NASCAR race, so I can't say whether this is authentic in any realm. But my problem is that it also just sets it up as, okay, a, like you said, Mike, the characters are assholes right from the beginning because they're all just shitting on this. Like they're there to watch cars get wrecked and like none of them actually are invested in what they're doing. And yeah, like Lindsay said, it's also just not subverting anything. And I know at this point we're four films in, we shouldn't be expecting subversion, but it also feels like, okay, well you phone this in a little bit, like tires and an explosion. Like the only moment I kind of genuinely enjoy is when the MILF gets the engine block to the chest. Mm-hmm. Is that the MILF or is that the mechanic's wife? I can't recall. I, I think the mechanic's wife gets smushed by right. the um, thing falling out of the sky. Okay. Yeah, oh my God. <laughs> yeah. This movie loves to smush people. It really does. It does, yeah. I, would I also say, think it's the weird. Oh, sorry, finish. Your no, thought. you first, Lindsay. Well, I was gonna kind of say I also think the like the exit in this one is the weirdest too. Mm. They like, you know, the plane exploding in the background, so cool. The roller coaster thing, so cool. Um, you know, the car accident, terrifying and real. Is where like in this one they exit and they're just kind of standing in a parking lot where there's like loud noise behind them, which mm-hmm. is really bizarre. But yeah, and then a and single was, wheel like falls. 300 feet yeah. <laughs> and smushes one of them and they right. also <laughs> and they also like i don't feel like they react too much to it weirdly like i think in the other ones it's like oh my god the plane crashes we're in this one they're like see explosion i knew it and yep. it's just kind of like this massive catastrophe is happening behind them and they just kind of walk away yeah, yeah. i think it's really odd there is um I think that reaction happens throughout this movie when characters buy it. Like there doesn't seem to be any real, like real gravitas to it. It's kind of like, Oh, all right. Well, I guess we'll move on at that point. What's for brunch. Um, Yeah. And I do think that that maybe is one of the reasons why 
why you feel like these characters are less likable, Mike. Um, I know you talked a lot in previous episodes about how grief is such an integral component of this series, and really nobody grieves in this movie. We get a kind of throwaway shot of them at this memorial, and even that, it's it's there for a hot second, and then Lori's like, okay, let's go. Like, (laughs) we just got here. I know, we haven't even... We see family members a lot in this mm-hmm. one. Like a lot of these people are related to each other. It's like a mother and a kid, a couple. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of like, all right. Yeah, and one thing too, like, to your point, <laughs> Joe, about how like I love roller coasters and I, you know, I've driven over bridges. I've driven in a car. I've ridden in airplanes and I've never gone to a NASCAR race. Um, I know NASCAR fans and there are definitely some lovely people that enjoy NASCAR, but they'll tell you like, yeah, we go for the car crashes. Like that's why we go. We certainly don't go because someone's going to drive really fast and turn left over and over again. Mm-hmm. Um, they want to go for crashes. So this to me is the one that's the most easy, easily avoidable of all of the deaths. Like I just won't go to a NASCAR race. So I don't get that <laughs> feeling, but this is also um and it's interesting, this one is filmed before the t- 2008 election, um, but it's interesting you have a character that is just so outwardly racist because you start, yeah. when this comes out in 29, like we are down the road of like the Tea Party forming and this really ugly trend in our own political culture here in the States. And I know some listeners hate when I get political and I won't oh, fuck get them. too far oh, into yeah, that. Yeah, I'm like, you know, not pictured as my full sneer. Yeah. Because this was filmed <laughs> before um, President Obama was elected. Um, but they have this character in there of like the racist. And this is very much like the um, fuck your feelings crowd in a NASCAR mm-hmm. race. Like if yeah. this was remade today, there would absolutely be a person, probably the mechanic and his wife, like wearing that t-shirt, like fuck your feelings. Mm-hmm. Um, that's what it would be. So for me, it's really hard to have a lot of empathy for that crowd. Um, as much as I try to sometimes and try to understand different experiences, there comes a point where I'm like, you know, the racist and I are never going to like kind of get along at this point. Like he's so outwardly terrible, um, and such a caricature of like what you would see that like, why do I care even in iota so that's the other thing about this movie that like always throws me off he also sucks because it's like he's an easy guy to kill like he's racist and that's bad so we're gonna kill him which makes it like super easy but there's also like easier ways to make someone racist if mm-hmm. that makes sense like i think it's a boring character you mean you, <laughs> you, you want to introduce a racist who doesn't drop the n-word in the first right. line of dialogue like- yeah, like, I was kind of like, okay, like, we didn't need that. No, we like, absolutely didn't of, need that. No, and I mean, you can also, I mean, there are so many, I don't even want to use the, the uh, I don't even know the word, but like so many hints you can put, like in 2020, mm-hmm. if you put a character in a red hat, I know exactly what I'm looking yeah. at. And like, yeah. there were definitely equivalents to that. And there were so many ways they could have made this guy look like a piece of shit without like forcing him to be like outwardly racist and then kill him. It's not cathartic. It but. didn't comment. It's just like, we got to make him say the N-word for fun. And you're like, no. One of the really insidious things around like the political culture and the political conversation of this time is like, oh, racism is over. We elected a black president. So therefore anyone can rise to this level. And 
there seems to be this misconception in the, and I'm saying our culture, I'm, I should say the United States because we have two lovely tar- Torontonians. Is that the right word? <laughs> yeah, um, we, we've got a prime minister yeah. who's mm-hmm. pretty good, but then we've got a lot of uh, mm-hmm. sort of secondary elected yeah, but, officials. Like our, our premier for the province mm-hmm. we live in is pretty garbage. But I think that what we don't understand here often is like racism isn't just where you know flying the stars and bars and wearing mm-hmm. a robe uh with a hood over it and saying the n-word over and over again like there are mm-hmm. like racism is something that's really like when people say the system is broken no the system was designed this way in 1776 mm-hmm. it was meant to like say you know black people are three-fifths of a person like that was written into our constitution 200 and 40 some odd years ago and there needs to be a real conversation about the ways that like racism is perceived now that isn't so obvious to your point Lindsay it doesn't just have to be a person with like a confederate flag in their shoulder saying the n-word and then uh whistling Dixie when he sees like a black security guard walk by him um so there needs to be like a real conversation and continue to be had around you know like how does racism really appear in our culture? And maybe Final Destination 4 isn't the movie that you're going to go to. It's necessarily the movie to, to do, do it, but they didn't oh. have to go this way, you right. know? It's like even in um, Saw, there's the racist characters and like, yeah. and it's even, it's also super shallow because it's like, mm-hmm. you are a racist, which is so stupid. Cause yeah, like, like clearly we're meant to cheer for your death solely <laughs> because you're a white supremacist. Yeah, and, right. and it's like, It lacks subtlety and it's just a little too on the nose. Like I do feel like this film, The Final Destination, is leaning into it because it is saying, you know what? Like we are going to start off with Mm -hmm. this bang. Like even if you don't know NASCAR, you don't like racist because in 20 or sorry, in 2008 and nine, when this movie was made, Mm -hmm. it was very much a, no, we're all on the same page, right? We don't like racist. We don't like white supremacists. Unfortunately, Mm -hmm. we can't say the same now. Right. We've uh, learned, unfortunately. Yeah. yeah. But I and think in this case, they they do think that they're delivering a catharsis first kill right. with this dude. And one thing to David R. Ellis's credit is he purposely talked New Line to bringing this movie to New Orleans to film um, a couple years after Hurricane Katrina. Um, and moving it away from Vancouver, telling the studio, like, look, we know we're going to make money on this. We already have a pretty big budget. It won't be that much more compared to what we're already spending. And it would be an economic boon for an area that is like really suffering right now. So to his credit, like that's one way that you can use your, you know, powers for good at that point to help like economically devastated areas. Like not everything has to be like, well, what's the tax incentive in order to do something what's the cheapest way around doing it and this movie does have like a little bit of a different look and feel than the other four i think because of that change in location i will say this as we're kind of talking out loud i do think that the filmmakers do get like caricature they really nail it like they really do because you mentioned uh lindsay the milf um i love this whole sequence like everything about this sequence just absolutely like tickles my funny bone in terms of like the um from the like the start of like the kids just like hucking rocks at this guy who all he's trying to do is do his job and they're throwing and they're throwing rocks at the sign and not at him 
Um, they're not like blue collar worker, F you, like get stoned, <laughs> you know? They're just want to throw rocks at a sign because that's what little kids do. Um, yeah. And he's telling them to fuck off, which is great. Um, but before there were Karens, like this is a Karen. This is like coming in late for your appointment and then five minutes before they close and still demanding like, or like not even demanding, but like, you know, like you can tell if she didn't get it, she was going to write a really scathing Yelp review. (laughs) But I like that we don't hate her, right? Like she's not likable in the traditional sense, but she's also not a huge bitch. Like Mm -hmm. she's, she's just demanding and she doesn't respect the fact that, you know, yeah, all of these women in this hair salon would probably like to leave at six when the shop Mm -hmm. closes. Yeah, she's just like, I'm going to jam. I have to stay hot. Otherwise, I can't be called MILF, but (laughs) which is my name and I'll lose my identity. Mm -hmm. I like her whole bit because it kind of throws back to that dentist scene where it messes with us for a long time. Like, Mm -hmm. there are so many dangers. And like, I do think it's a really fun set piece. I like, she's in danger for so long. There's so many teases. And I think it's one of the greater ones in the series for that reason and then it's just like oh jk we're gonna kill her some completely mm-hmm. other way yeah like i really think that when people hate on this movie they want to talk about like the white supremacist death they want to talk about nick sano's death which i do think is a low bar for the mm-hmm. entire series but they're also forgetting this death and i think they're forgetting about the entire mall sequence which are like really fun good set pieces like they are well constructed yeah for sure as someone who I grew up the son of a hairdresser, my mom and her sisters uh, and my grandmother, like grandmother founded her own hairdressing salon. Um, and then my mom and her sisters took it over and ran it for years before selling it. As a kid growing up, like my mom would always cut my hair and, you know, like she just wanted to get it done. I think maybe that's why I'm letting my beard grow out now that I can, because it's a active rebellion here in my middle age against my mom because like she would just try to get it she did not take the same care with me I would say as she did with um her clients so I would get like nicked all the time so when you would see like those um but like the scissors those things are sharp I mean like they are absolutely like they will do some damage so I have a real thing about like people getting haircuts in horror movies when you know that something can go horribly wrong like that and I do like Lindsay, to your point, how like that's not what does her in. It is the absolute cheese ball line. I've got my eye on you. And then you have CGI rock through CGI eye socket. Um, yeah. And the two kids screaming. And like, those are some kids that are going to need a lot of counseling. <laughs> but I so I'm, I'll confess I'm always super disappointed when a horror movie includes children and then doesn't kill them. Mm-hmm. Um, I really wish that I, I don't. I don't love how they talk around the way that, okay, well, they would have gotten out, but she would have died. So she's the only one who dies. I'm like, no, just kill them all. Like you brought yeah. them all right there. But I'm, and this is going to be a recurring bit. So uh, I did want to mention that I think because this is the, at the time, final entry into this franchise, this is one of my favorite sequences because it's also calling back to a bunch of the other films. So the mm-hmm. bit with the scissors is Todd from the first film. And then we've also got the slip on the floor, which is like the slip in the acupuncture in number three. And then the rock through the eye is very reminiscent of how uh, Billy dies in the first one Mm -hmm. or how the lotto winner dies in the second one. I did not pick up on that 
at all. I was doing that for the fifth movie in all the little hints, but holy crap, my mind is blown. This movie is genius. A plus. <laughs> <laughs> I've got like a whole list of them. They actually do a lot. I mean, some of let's them are do a bit this now. Reach, like, let's but... keep, keep going, my friend. Keep going. <laughs> okay, so uh, there's a moment here where Nick and Lori try to weapon-proof their house, which is what mm-hmm. Alex does in the first film. They're, they make a reference that they're going to travel, and the first place they list as a destination is Paris. Paris, mm-hmm. yeah. Mm. The most obvious one that I think everybody can pick up on is that Nick sees the Clear River sign, which is, of course, the reference mm-hmm. to Clear. Yeah. Uh, this one I never clocked, but this is a part of the IMDb trivia. The black car at the mechanics, like in the auto body shop, is apparently the same make and model that Carter drives in the first film. Oh okay. my god, I would not have picked up on that. I know, I'm like, I'm not a car person. Yeah, so I'm no. like, black car, <laughs> um, the, the redneck racist is actually named Carter. That's his first name. Oh. Hmm. Uh, the Sorry, go ahead. No, I would say this, what I love is when movies do these not so obvious nods to the ones that come before it in a way that's not, um, like you said, you can you don't need to see it in order. You don't need to have seen the other movies to enjoy them. Mm-hmm. But if you're a super fan, like it's very rewarding at that point in a really neat way. It's like really rewarding. Yeah, and the nice little Easter eggs, right? Yeah, it's the finale. It's like you've come this far, even though it yeah. wasn't, but you've come this far. Here's how we're going to remind you. So mm-hmm. yeah, that is fun. I love that. Because even like those opening credits, right? I mean, they're obviously hallmarks of the original three. Um, yeah. I've got a lot more if you want. Let's hear it. I want to hear them all. <laughs> Let's do it. Okay, uh, another obvious one is that the racetrack is McKinley Racetrack, which of mm-hmm. course is the high school in the first film yes. and also the name of the goth guy from the third film. Yep. Okay, uh, references to Final Destination 2. We've got the mechanic against the fence, which I read as a reminder of Alice's kill with the kid who gets the um, the fence with the barbed wire through the yes. midsection. Yeah. yeah. Um, there's a sequence in a hospital, which is like, this is the only other film that does it apart from two. Mm-hmm. And then with number three, um, there's a reference to the amuse- our amusement parks dead when they're having coffee on the TV. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I that. Uh, the nail gun, and there's like a person working with wood in the construction zone at the cinema at the end, mm-hmm. which is obviously a reference to the goth dead kids working in like the Home Depot kind of place. And then uh, this one's a bit of a reach, but you could say this is the. This is the only other film that has like the second death sequence at the end mm-hmm. um, initially, because as you'll talk about in the fifth one, they do that again. But at the time it looked like it was saying, oh, this worked in three, right. so we're going to do it again. And then there's also like George getting smashed by the bus out of nowhere, very similar to right. Terry yeah. in part Terry. one. Yep. Mm-hmm. So, and then of course there's like references to 180 throughout the entire movie if you want to look at it for them. <laughs> right, which I think every... All yeah. of them do that. Like that 180 is a recurring, a recurring motive throughout all of them. So you mentioned you did not like Hunt's death at all. Um, no. What was it about? I'll say one thing I do like about that whole sequence is when the kid squirts him with a water pistol and he's like, give me that. And first the kid is laughing. He's like, no. And then Hunt's like, no, really give me that. And the kid gets a little bit fearful. Like, oh God, this kid is like three times my size. Mm-hmm. And could, there's that moment of like, I shouldn't have done this. Like I've, I've woken the bear. I love that little half second look on that kid's face because I think I've been that kid 
many, many times growing up. I caught many a beating from older kids for like sticking my neck out where it didn't belong. But what is it about this sequence that doesn't work? Oh man. Just, oh boy. Um, I, there's a certain element of like meanness to a lot of deaths or you feel like, oh, the, there's a cheekiness to it. So they can either be mean or cheeky or they're just for like blunt force, like, you know, Terry getting hit by the bus. It's just there and it's done and you move on. With this, it, it feels mean, but not in a funny way. And I get that we're supposed to think that this guy is an asshole. And the joke is that he's literally losing his life by being disemboweled through the ass. But I also feel like, and you, you two can feel free to clock me on this, but I feel like there's a weird kind of like attack, like a thinly veiled attack on, well, this dude's a manly man. So of mm -hmm. course the worst thing that could possibly happen to him is that something would come out of his ass. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, I, I mean, like that may or may not have been a read I immediately saw, but yeah, like for sure. His whole bit is that he's like this big tough guy. He's having sex right before he dies mm -hmm. in like a very obvious over the top way. Um, and then he, and he's controlling in that moment, you know, the man in that moment. And then, mm -hmm. so it's almost like supposed to like shame him and put him back in his place. That it's going to be yeah. a butt thing. Yep. And it's like yeah. a shitty way of like acting like the antithesis of manliness is something yeah. in your butt I so think, to speak yeah i think of it if you are the target one half of the target audience for this movie would be like late teen to like mid 20 something straight dudes yeah right mm -hmm. um and i say one half because like women love horror movies and they would be the other in that same age bracket i think sometimes companies forget that um mm. oh, all but, the they, <laughs> but it's no but i think that like the cheap the cheap gag that you would go for is like, like you said, like, what's the worst thing could happen? Like death by anus. And that would yeah. be, you know, so um, it's a cool sequence in terms of like how it's staged and like the is under there for so long that it gets a bit uncomfortable at that point. Um, in the deleted scene, there's like an alternate take on his death. And one of the things that happens is he gets this, um, flotation device and he's able to poke a hole in it and breathe for a bit so that's actually kind of clever because uh, he's just down there for so long um and it's like a really grotesque death and i can see i can easily see why someone would be like that is an attack at that point on on queerness um yeah and, and it's also like oh sorry i won't no you. no that's okay it's a boring take on a pretty common death like i remember as a kid there was always the, the, you know, the urban legends about uh, someone getting their hair cut, caught in the bottom of the pool. And there was a big deal when they started mm -hmm. making pool filters near the surface versus at the bottom. And I don't remember what movie it was. I watched it on TV as a kid. So I have no idea what it's from and I'll probably never remember. But there's a woman who gets her hand stuck in a filter on the bottom and can't breathe. And, right. you know, it happens in so many things. There's that scary moment in the public pool where someone is stuck underneath and they can't breathe and they're looking up at all these people and no one's going to be able to know because there's a right. crowd. And it's like a very scary, spooky thing. And you can feel the panic in that moment. But I don't feel his panic at all. And then it just ends up being like an ass joke yeah. versus like what either it could have been a cliche death um, but it doesn't like subvert the cliche or anything yeah. like that it's just like he's stuck underwater which is like a horrible way to die but we're gonna rip his guts out through his butt mm -hmm. and shoot them out the filter 
Well, and and in the history of this franchise, one of the things that they'll do is they'll they'll show us an object and it'll have this kind of looming menace mm-hmm. to it, right? Like they love to uh, they love to turn inanimate objects into weapons as though they have minds of their own. And there's nothing interesting about this death because you see that filter kind of open up and you can see that the water is being pulled through very quickly and then he just gets stuck to it and that's what happens like and I also think that this death suffers because it's actually being cross-cut with another potential death at the Mm -hmm. same time and that other death to me is far more interesting so I'm like you're actually losing the power of this by having one sort of black luster entry Mm -hmm. being uh, placed right in conjunction with one that's way, way, way more effective. I mean, a more interesting way to do this would be to have those confluence of of, of uh, coincidences ping pong back and forth. So you're cutting from one to the other and watching it build up. But here, like to your point, Lindsay, he's just stuck. But let's talk about that. I think one of the better sequences in any of the movies, like it's a really cool, even though it's not a death scene, um, that car wash scene is legit terrifying just just from thinking of all like the sensory visuals of like the hot wax and the hot water and the mm-hmm. soap going in all the orifices like I love that yeah. yeah it's a great scene and like I kind of liked the whole two deaths happening at the same time gag um, I think it was like fun and could have been really effective but like to Joe's exact point it just made it really obvious that like, one, one of was so much good. better than the other. <laughs> yeah. Like it would have been really neat if they were both pretty suspenseful because then you're like, oh my God. And like, there's an order and this guy has to die first before she does. And like, there's a lot of like interesting suspense because usually it's like, okay, these people are going to die in order. They're still suspense, but they're going to die in order. So this is kind of changing that up, which could have been so compelling and interesting, but the car wash is so suspenseful and scary and him, you're yes. just like, yeah, that dude's going to die. <laughs> yeah. Like I, I think you know, we, you probably talked and we talked about this on our, our chat when we watched these back as a group uh, last, late last year. But one of the things that I love is the idea that they retcon, in a, not retcon, they have to write the desk backwards, right? So they figure out what they're going to do and then they move it backwards to be like, how do we get here? How do we get here? And I love this idea of somebody thinking about a sunroof that gets stuck open in a car wash as like an impetus and then how do you get someone into that position where you could possibly fucking drown in your own car and again this feels like a kind of relatable thing because we've all had automated processes that break and it's like oh great the window is now stuck down and it's you know minus 30 degrees outside or uh something like this so this feels really relatable but it's also extravagantly ridiculous like Mm -hmm. the idea that she could die in this situation is so bananas and I love that, that it's melding those two, the very relatable situation that we've all encountered, but then augmenting it into a final destination round where you're just thinking, no, what, wait, what, what? Ah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Like the only part of the sequence I don't like is the fact, I mean, I don't mind that she gets saved because I think it's kind of cool that they do actually circumvent a death. Yeah. I just don't like the idea that they managed to find her and know to drive their car through the exit and save her in that fashion because I'm okay like yeah, I just like... don't believe that part of it mm-hmm. yeah. yeah I I think it's just so much you have to like oh yeah our movie logic you gotta let go <laughs> um like whatever and I think nobody mourns hunt in this movie at all like to the point no. before about like 
it's allegedly like Nick's best friend, which says a yeah. lot about Nick at that point. If they're such they good don't friends. even reference him again. They're no. celebrating like, with champagne two scenes later. Who mm-hmm. they literally start celebrating with champagne and like go like life is back to normal. They yeah. go to a movie. They're like they oh, Yeah, uh, and they have like fights at the movie and like squat mm-hmm. like they're completely like eh. Right, yeah. they're not like Hunt would have lauded us to see this movie. It's just yeah, like rip, oh, rip Hunt, Hunt anyway. You know? you know, it's when they celebrate. They celebrate beating death, and it's like a bunch of your friends died, or like a bunch of people you know and one of your best friends died, and they're like, yeah. "We did it." You know, what's what's hitting now? I'm thinking about this. You know, like why they're going like the first thing they like really do after like they break the secret is like let's go, go to, to a movie i'm like that seems like <laughs> so like that's not the first thing we're all gonna do when that's the world exactly up. <laughs> that's exactly what i thought like you know the first day like as soon as i get the vaccine and it's safe to do so the first thing i'm going to do is like triple feature at the local multiplex yeah like, that's the first thing we're all going to do see three movies that day so i think that is really interesting where maybe seeing this i'm like i'm not going to a movie first i love the movies and all but don't get me wrong and now i'm like oh my god the two things i want to do go to the movies and like go to a basement punk show are the two things that i really want to do filthy disgusting crowd of people i can't wait and it's also like (laughs) these movies also um two things that they that are like almost like so jokey that they really do like the early celebration in these movies they early selly in these movies all the time like they're always like mm-hmm. this crazy supernatural massacre happened but like we're pretty sure we got ahead of it so let's party and like mm-hmm. live life yeah. as usual like even in three Yolo. yeah even in three she's like he has to kill me before he has to ki- death has to kill me before it gets to you so like don't even worry about it you're mm-hmm. like what like, why are you not- pretending like you have a playbook and you know what the fuck is happening right. like why are you so confident and then in that bit where they're like cheers Todd's not around to explain this shit either this time yeah, so. yeah. it was like Honestly, the early the, hall of fame the i think the least i i don't like hunt's death and i don't like other components of this film but i hate the scene where they go to mike healthy williamson's house and find that he has attempted to die by suicide mm-hmm. and yeah. has been trying to do it all day and there's actually a deleted scene that shows him being like like they say oh okay we must be okay and he's like let's do one more try and he mm-hmm. actively tries to cut his own wrist with a razor blade yeah and it's like it it's so tone deaf that i almost can't forgive this film for including this yeah. because yeah. i i think specifically too because he's the person of color in this movie He's already been given a tragic backstory about his wife and his daughter. Mm-hmm. And it's inferred that he's like a religious person. So right. none of this tracks for his character. And then we get them like popping the apple cider. And you're just like, yeah. no, I'm sorry. It's, yeah. He's given <laughs> yeah. a tragic backstory that he's the cause of. It's not just that his wife and daughter died in a car crash, but like the one person of color it has to be his fault like he has mm-hmm. to be the one responsible oh and he went he was to jail drunk. apparently yeah of course it, you're just like fuck you movie. right like this yeah. is not okay it's it's, it's way too every much. time it's not even something that like upon like oh you know like every time you're just like Ugh. And like that whole way of like I've been trying but because of the chain so we mm-hmm. did it and like 
there's a lot of reasons why it's messy. Like the idea that he'd be in that place. And then five minutes later, be like, but I couldn't do it. So it means we win is mm. weird. Yeah, and then, no. you know, the motivation of like, are you trying to break the chain or do you want to die? Like, it's just all messy. It doesn't consider the very real, like it doesn't consider anything real and it doesn't discuss anything real. Right. It's just like a messy, shitty, weird. But it's just kind of fun to think like, then that it, it's kind of fun then to think that if you read it through this like racial lens, like, mm-hmm. oh, well, of course they would like go to the movies and buy new shit and plan trips because it's like the white privilege is so real. Right. They're like, oh my yeah, God, yeah, like, we're safe, to let's normal. spend money. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> everything, oh, I'm just so glad everything can go back to normal. Right. Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> it is. Yeah. There are a lot of very interesting ways you can express like the breaking the chain in the movie without having to give someone like that tragic backstory. Like he could have had like in the midst of trying to rescue somebody, like had something happen where he should have died, but couldn't at that point. They literally do it in part five. So like, it's not an impossible thing Mm -hmm. to do and to mess with and discuss. And they could have done it without the tragic backstory and they could have done it without making like really um, shallow yeah. like writing about suicide yeah i don't think that suicide talk should necessarily be a taboo subject i think that not to say to normalize it but to make it so that like people that suffer from suicidal ideation um can discuss it and can get it out in the open and aren't shamed for it and that's not made this yeah. taboo i forget who it was i was talking to about this but they would say they were telling me how like they would never tell anyone that they were having like suicidal thoughts and they were nothing that I was like, Oh, um, I would definitely do it. And here is my plan. And this is how that I would carry it out. It was like very simple. Um, I wonder what it would be like if I were dead or what would it be like if I jumped in traffic, huh? I'm going to go move on with my day. But there was like such a fear that if they even expressed it to a counselor or you know another mandated reporter that they immediately would be like sectioned against their will like the plot of unsane by soderbergh would spring to life um Mm. and i think the great damage there is that it like makes persons keep things in Mm -hmm. that they otherwise like would feel a lot better talking about and not normalizing at that point so yeah i think the problem is is that like media like this it propositions as though you would have to be in these you know final destination level ridiculous scenarios to contemplate it or mm-hmm. yeah that uh this is something that will just immediately earmark you as oh you're you're so unwell mm-hmm. and it's like mm-hmm. or we could just acknowledge that we yeah. don't have to be okay all the time right but that doesn't mean also that we need to be committed as a result mm-hmm. of it yeah, yeah. 2020 yeah. is the year that I've used the phrase, it's okay to not be okay yeah. a lot. And to remind people like, yeah, it's like, I don't know why I'm not doing good right now. I'm like, it's 2020, man. Mm-hmm. Like, that's really like, that's the only explanation that you need. And I know, honestly, as a, as a therapist, I'm actually more comfortable talking with people about suicidal ideation than like run of the mill self-harm. And I don't know what it is, but it's just something where like my comfort level is more when it comes to that, when it comes to suicidal ideation than someone that might engage in non-lethal things, but like means of comforting themselves through like 
cutting or scratching themselves or things like that. And that's a me thing. That's definitely just where I am, you know, in my professional career. And it's something that I kind of have to kind of work through. So did not expect to go down this road. <laughs> I mean, there's a lot to say and, you know, there's a whole, you know, a whole other discussion for another day, mm-hmm. so to speak. There's a lot to say on that. I think that movies, it's something that I think in movies and horror movies have done a really terrible job with uh, always. Like, you know, there's a note on my phone somewhere about like all the times movies have done that category very dirty. Um, you know, even, I mean, it was a different time, but even if you want to talk about like Dream Warriors, they're like, he couldn't hack it, get mm-hmm. over yeah. it. And like yeah. that whole discussion. Yeah. So it's done really dirty and it's also used for a scare. The person who does it is always some kind of haunting ghost because they were haunted and now they're haunted. So it's always really done very dirty in horror movies, I think. Mm-hmm. And I don't think we've reached a point where we're even now, like I think in even really modern stuff, I don't think we've reached a point where we talk about depression, suicide, well, at all, especially in horror movies. And mm-hmm. I think this is just really in part with that is this didn't make him into some demon or some haunting, terrible, tortured ghost, which happens more often, I would say, Mm -hmm. but it does just like gloss over something pretty um, heavy and that we don't have good language for yet. And that we don't discuss really well in like a ha ha and I couldn't do it. So let's pop some champagne and party. Like, it's just like, what in the world? He could have said, there are a million things that could have happened and mm-hmm. you know they all probably would have been cartoony and dumb but i just think this was mm-hmm. just like without nuance without grace and it was just like yikes oh. yuck yeah a lot of shortcuts taken here mm-hmm. up to and including yeah. his death you know which again yeah. it's like oh okay well that guy's dead and now i gotta go save my girlfriend yep <laughs> not even a moment to grieve not even a moment to consider what happened there just completely disposable um and it's because you see in every other movie like persons that have nothing to do with the death are like retained by first responders just ask what happened Mm -hmm. and he's immediately like off like a shot like nope no time for that dr jones i'm on my way Mm -hmm. um so he moves right to the climax of the movie and i think that's maybe where we'll end today what do we think of this like second massive sequence set in the mall in the movie theater which has the line i was meant to see this movie right before someone gets a spear through the eye solely for the marketing and for the trailer and bravo absolutely yeah, the, like reverse engineered scene mm-hmm. yeah. i like the end set piece i think it goes on for too long to the point that when the twist happens you're like oh my god do i have to watch this again um <laughs> and like, Ugh, so much happened which i definitely think is annoying um but I don't know. I think it's really fun. I remembered it. I couldn't remember this movie when we were talking about going through a rewatch. I couldn't remember this one, but I remembered a set piece that I couldn't really place. And then we watched the theater. I was like, oh, yeah. So I guess it kind of shows you it's like a little bit not very memorable in a mm-hmm. weird way because it ends up being a collection of cliches. But it is fun. The movie thing is so fun. What a great way to end a series like, mm-hmm. well, to quote end a ser- mm-hmm. series. Um, I had a lot of fun with it, but it is too long and too much and kind of dumb. Yeah, I'll agree with that. I do think it goes on for a little too long. I like how they change it up the second time. Like, you know, Nick doesn't even try to find her in the theater. He just immediately goes to where the construction is. Um, I really like that he ends up losing the use of one of his arms in this final sequence, because I do think it gives it a certain amount of tense uh, Mm -hmm. questioning. Um, I mean, I think people could quibble with 
and people certainly have this idea that, you know, oh, he can set off a fire alarm and it's just going to immediately get rid of gasoline that's been lit on fire. It's like, mm, that's not really how it works. But, you know, again, <laughs> like, I yeah. think that it's more interesting than him just trying to save his girlfriend right. and their friend. He actively tries to save an entire theater because mm -hmm. this would have been a bigger massacre than the NASCAR Oh, much bigger. Opening death scene. And we see the headline that says like 52 people have died in that mm -hmm. one. You know, what's, there's an uh, alternate ending to the movie that says that exact thing, like Dick died a hero. Like instead of, he like runs to the theater. He, oh no, they don't even get to the movie. Like he knows a fire's going to happen. He sees the whole thing. He finds his girlfriend and he's like, this is how I want you to remember me. And he like, he, they chase after him, but he gets away. He goes to where the fire is raging and he puts it out. There's this canister that's going to explode and he like jumps out of a window with it and rides it like a jetpack to his oh, death no. below. Um, yeah, it's <laughs> not good. Like I think like, it wasn't finished because you could see the string on his back and everything. Like yeah, it's not a great that. sequence. Um, but then like the two girls are like crying after and they're saying like, you know, like he died a hero. He saved everybody. And then they're immediately smushed by falling debris and it ends. You're like, <sighs> it was a really terrible ending. And it was the original yeah. planned ending. There's that. And then originally they both die in the escalator, which is that great right. sequence. Like when that little bit of gristle that's going through the years like that's actually really good um well yeah, i like that payoff for you know the tease with her shoe and the shoelace and mm -hmm. you know i know a lot of people complain oh why doesn't she just take her foot out of her shoe and it's like because oftentimes don't like, like you just you don't you're like just pull it just pull it yeah oh my god it's fun like i think that's what i really like about so many of the deaths in this movie you know there's always that i think we talked about it kind of briefly for the last episode but there's always those like twitter prompts or whatever or things like that where that go around where it's like what's the behavior that you've changed as a result of a scary movie you know checking right. the back of your car and things like mm -hmm. that and final destination is two things one it created a bunch and two it is all of those things like when i was a kid my mom always told me to keep my eye out for the filter in the pool and to make sure mm -hmm. i had my hair tied back and always tie your laces before you get on the oh, escalator yeah. and make sure like those are things that like i was hyper aware of maybe that's why I am the healthy adult, you know, today um, but, <laughs> where I'm like, oh God, an escalator. Oh no. But, um, you know, those things were, were everywhere and Final Destination really messes with those in such an effective way. Like exactly what Joe was saying with the car, you know, and when you get into the car wash, like before Final Destination, I always double checked my mirrors before, or my mirrors, my windows were all the way up whenever I would get into a car wash. Not because I thought it was going to kill me because it was like, oh my God, make sure. Otherwise something might happen. Mm -hmm. yeah. So the escalator, like the shoelace thing, you're like, oh no, my mom warned me. <laughs> and it's playing off urban legends, right? Yeah. Yes, yeah, to yeah, be totally. In the writer's room, like I would love to be in the the writer's room when you're getting together and going, okay, let's like brainstorm these ideas out. Like what are the mundane things that we take for granted that can actually cause us a lot of harm and destruction? And then like, let's, cause you start with like you said, like the escalator. Uh, the shoe getting caught. How do we work backwards from that? Or like a, they, you know, an explosion in a movie theater. You know, we see like a lot of like gremlins. You see this happen where the movie, the screen catches on fire uh, mm -hmm. when they're all watching Snow White. Okay, like how do we work from there so something like this would happen? I would love to see the whole process of that 
kind of play out from the start. So I think that would be a really fascinating creative endeavor. That's a fun game. If you were to write, I don't know, this is probably a question we needed more time with, but if you were to like write your final destination death sequence, what would be like your fear that gets oh, you? That's funny. Cause I, I was going to actually ask you, I, I don't know if you've been doing this with the other guests in these episodes, but if you've been speculating like what the opening sequence will be of the remake, because I a hundred percent nailed what I would do based on mm-hmm. what Mike said earlier in this episode. Which oh my be? gosh. I'm s- okay. Let's, let's play. Let's hear I want to know an underground music concert <gasps> and then you'd have to be careful with this because there's been real life tragedies there were the real uh, ones, yeah. but I mean like this NASCAR death is actually based on a real tragedy mm-hmm. that happened uh, back in the 50s so I think there is kind of like an onus but if we go off of the basis that it's usually something very communal and relatable I think like a music venue where one, you know, most of the emergency exits have been accidentally blocked mm-hmm. and there's a stampede, there's alcohol usually so you can catch that on fire. There's lots of sand equipment that can swing and crush and all sorts of fun things like that. Oh, there so good. was a moment in history in Boston where someone thought it would be funny to try to light fireworks in ba- at basement punk shows. Oh, and that happened at one. I think one of the members of like Lock and Key got really injured. But I remember oh, I was at my, one of my best friend, Nip, he had a band that I loved back 10 years ago. And they played their last show um, at a club. And then they did like one more show the next night with Lemuria in a basement in Brighton. And at one point during one of the songs, the drummer looked up, saw a kid try to light fireworks, got up from his kit, grabbed a kid, and literally just like walked him out and then shut the door, then went and started playing again. <laughs> and it was oh really God. funny at the time. But then I remember thinking my wife and I were there up front, like we could have gotten okay. it so dangerous. chaos. Like just the idea of bodies like crushing you. Yeah. Um, Green Day... 20 years ago, played a show in Boston at the Hat Shell. It was a free concert. It was like a month after the Woodstock thing where everybody was throwing mud and people thought they would recreate that. I don't know if people remember like Woodstock 93 or 95, I think it was. Like they had a huge mud fight in the crowd during that. So every time they played an outdoor show after that, people thought they would do that. So I took my younger sister to go see it and we got separated there were about 70,000 people there. It was a free yeah. out day. And I remember being separated from my sister, who was at that point like 15, and being absolutely like terrified. I'm never going to see her again. Yeah. Um, it was pure chaos. So yeah, it would be it would be like a punk show in a basement with all the doors. That's scary. Locked. Yeah. What One would yours be, like- Lindsay? I don't know. I'm laughing when you said Green Day specifically. One of my like most Lindsay stories ever was going to a Green Day concert outside at uh, this place called Molson Park in very, Joe knows it, but a very mm-hmm. large outdoor venue that was a very, very, very tight crowd for Green Day. And I like pushed myself to the front, like work. So, you know, that first 20 minutes where you spend all that time getting yourself up to the front till I'm right at the front. And then I broke my glasses. Like someone hit me in the face and smashed oh, my glasses. No. And I was like, oh no, my glasses. It was like the most like Lindsay thing ever that I was like trapped at the front of this Green Day show the entire time thinking like, I have to watch this blind. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Can't even see. And then if people are like, I mean, cause People don't really dance at shows anymore, but like 20 yeah. years ago, people would go bananas and oh, yeah. 
you know, you could, even if you were conscious of what's going on, it was very easy to take like a fist to the face or someone yeah. windmilling. So I can't imagine being blind and then like having someone <laughs> like, just, and all of a sudden having like feet to the face at that point and you yeah. can't, Oh you know, God. Wow. I was like, oh, of course that, yeah, it was, it's funny. That's like I, in time. the t- in the moment I was like, I was young and you know, resilient and was just like, this is a funny thing that's happening. Mm-hmm. happened to me now. I'd probably be very, very, very yeah. upset. I just start crying at this yeah, Green Day concert. <laughs> yeah, crying in the middle of a crowd at a Green Day concert. Um, I, I don't know what mine would be. I definitely have so many weird fears like that, that I feel like in 20 minutes, I'm going to be like, oh, I should have said that. I don't know. I mean, really, any method of transportation is always fair game. Like, I am thinking about some kind of train or subway accident. Like, you could try to pay off what began or rather ended three yeah because um, that is a great sequence but it's also like a little bit brief so yeah, yeah. train derailment is a scary big fun one Tra- yeah travel's always fair game i think any like crowded place like movie theater is tough for a because they did it and b because of climate so to speak but yeah anything crowded a concert's such a good one oh, man i don't know oh. So I think this has been a really fun discussion, especially thinking of the ways you've almost died. And <laughs> now that um, I watched that movie Soul last night, the new Pixar movie, yeah. Oh, yeah. my daughter chose that over the new Wonder Woman for the family movie. And um, there's this, it's like the sequence where like his, the main character is like kind of moving towards the afterlife. It's this animated Pixar movie and I had this like feeling in the pit of my stomach I'm like oh my god I want to shut this off right now like I'm it's Christmas night I'm looking at my own mortality how many of these do I have left and this is supposed to be a fun kids movie can we just watch more Mandalorian please I want (laughs) to see Pixar (laughs) you know so yeah um but I think other than that it's been a really fun discussion on the final (laughs) destination Um, all those scary things killing you in all those scary things happening so joe what is going on with the horror queers i know like recently you featured Lindsay on to -hmm. talk batman and i thought like a really incredible episode with ariel fisher on better watch out um which i thought was like a a must listen episode but what else is going on and what's planned for 2021 Well, we are starting the third year of the podcast in January, so when this episode drops, we'll likely be in the middle of a month of threes. We're covering only the third entry in franchises, and of course, we always have to begin with Scream, so we'll have covered Scream 3, and then the other ones are Mysteries. Scream 3! What is the over-under on a discussion of Gail Weathers' bangs in Scream how many minutes are we going on the bangs so i literally put it into my opening because we don't actually want to address it because we feel like uh trace makes a very valid point the minute that the person that you're making fun of acknowledges and actually makes fun of it herself the joke is done so Mm -hmm. we need to move on from the bangs discussion it was great while we had it and now we need to talk about some new things also because at the end of the day we're also making fun of a woman's like physical attributes mm-hmm. and it's like or we could not we just don't need to do that i feel like it's like it's the it's you know it's the thing you mentioned and then it's like that's it we got yeah. it like but there's I nothing love... else to be said so <laughs> yeah, I, I mean said. it's terrible objectively but i think there's so many more interesting things mm-hmm. to talk about in that movie like why scream three so underrated when it's almost perfect 
<laughs> well, I <think laughs> there's the hot take for the episode. That's another. So we started with that series almost two years ago in my take on Scream 3 or early all of them. There's not a bad movie in that series. It's just this mm-hmm. one's less good than one, yeah. two, and four, but it doesn't make it a bad movie. Um, yeah. it's, it's the a, final destination of the Scream yeah. franchise. It's a, <laughs> yeah. it's a yes. Scooby-Doo movie. It's like a Scooby-Doo movie. And the I kind of hope the fifth one picks up like the unused elements from part three, which sound like a really fascinating movie of bringing back mm. Stu. Um, Cause that's a movie that I would love to see, but you know, given what happened in 1999 with Columbine, like that caused like a radical yeah. shift in the story and the tone of Scream three overall. But again, like probably the least satisfying of that series but it's a series where your lowest film would be like a solid b plus in my book so yeah like they're all enjoyable it's just yeah i mean i think when you start to look at it as a production issue it's really easy to begin forgiving the faults Mm -hmm. of that Mm -hmm. film because it's it's not the film that they wanted to make but unfortunately it's the film that we get it was their second choice and like well what can we do at that Mm -hmm. point so um, so where can our listeners find you on the socials and where can they find your work? All right. So if folks want to find the podcast, it's at horror queers on Instagram and Twitter. And if you want to follow me personally to keep track of some of my writing and that sort of thing, it's at be stole my remote. And that's the letter B. Here, where did that handle come from? <laughs> I do get that a lot. It's uh, based off an old joke off of uh, the show Fashion Police. Mm-hmm. So there was a segment in there called Bitch Stole My Look, where celebrities each wore the same outfit and then they would talk about who wore it best. Mm-hmm. So it was a riff on that with television because originally my personal blog was a television coverage blog. Okay. It's... Not the most interesting or relevant of story, but okay. the handle has persisted like 15 years later. It just stays with you. Well, mm-hmm. thank you so much for coming on. It has been an absolute pleasure. Trace, your co-host, has a lot to live up to next week. So oh, we're going to no, have back you, to back. You're closing out with a bang because you're talking Excellent. excited Trace about a movie he absolutely loves. So yeah. good luck getting the word edgewise. Excellent. It's going to be I a think 10. The best shows are the ones where I talk the least. So trust me, I'm very <laughs> happy about that. Um, Lindsay, you've got some pretty exciting projects coming up. Like you were telling me about one. It's probably going to take a long time to get done, but there's, I think you have some, you're looking at me right now. Which so one? Will be oh, chairs. Oh my God. Yes. I was like, what are you talking about? I didn't mention anything. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um <laughs> Stay tuned. I'm working on a large chair project. If anyone's had a conversation with me in the past uh, two months, you know, I've been obsessive about trying to find a new office chair. So I'm currently working on finding um, the best gaming and office chairs for women, kind of typical women's body types. Not that uh, that's a specific um, exclusive thing, but just more, you know, what's going to fit your hips and your height. So I'm working on Wait, that. Because you mean women have different bodies? Like, because not all what? women are built exactly the same. That is a fact. But despite being 5'4", it does not mean that I have the waist of a boyish figure. Um, mm-hmm. So cannot cannot relate to the ones built for women's sizes, typically saying perfect for 11-year-old boys and adult women. Um, we are not <laughs> in the same shape. Um, so I'm working on that. Keep you posted. <laughs> Stay tuned. Should be exciting, riveting. And my sciatica will be uh, 
really exciting uh, Twitter fodder. Sorry. Just joking. Um, <laughs> yeah, uh, working on a few more things. The next issue of Grim Magazine is coming soon. So pay attention for that. Um, and I will make sure to post about that on Twitter. I got a few movie reviews for the end of the year things coming. Um, and we'll see. January could be exciting. I'm working on, Excellent. you know. Excellent. Things. Well, listeners, thank you so much. You know, you can find me at Mike underscore Snoonian. You can find my other show on the Consequence of Sound Network with Psychoanalysis, a horror therapy podcast. Um, this was number 100. And, you know, like I, thought, I thought we'd make like a big deal of it and do like a Simpsons clip show episode. But I, That's you know what? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, like, I, yeah, have fun. I kind of <laughs> like it a lot. No, it would not be fun. It would be hell. Um, but I, I think there's something to be said about just kind of like putting your head down and doing the work. And I just want to take a moment to anyone who's like listened to us, who has like left us a comment, who's left us a review, who has like joined us on Twitter or Facebook, who's a patron. Um, thank you so much. Like doing this show has definitely kept me sane this year in particular. And the idea of doing this show kept me sane the last year of grad school when I thought I was going to snap. So it means a lot to me to keep this going. Um, and I am like just really excited about some stuff we're going to hopefully be doing in the next year. So thanks very much. Have a, hope you had a great new year. Remember to wash your hands, wear a mask, stay six feet away, and please get vaccinated when it's your turn to have a great day.